0: Next reading is from 1 Kings 5. Now King Hiram of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram had always been a friend to David. Solomon sent word to Hiram saying, you know that my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. So I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God, as the Lord said to my father, David, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Then Solomon assembled the leaders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the leaders of the ancestral houses of the Israelites before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. All the people in Israel assembled to King Solomon at the festival in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests carried the ark. So they brought up the ark of the Lord the tent of the meeting and all the holy vessels that were in the tent the priests and all the levites brought them up king solomon and all the congregation of israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings out over the place of the ark, so that that they made a covering above the ark and the poles. The poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. They are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses had placed in there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said... The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, tear down our idols and work reformation in us. Amen. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 500 years ago, Tuesday, in the town of Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther is said to have nailed his topics for debate, his 95 theses, to the door of the castle church. At issue for Luther was the sale of indulgences. Certificates issued from the Pope's office, which promised reduced punishment in purgatory for the purchaser. Now, to be clear, this wasn't the same thing exactly as buying salvation. At the time, purgatory uh, was not hell, it was believed to be the place where the souls of dead Christians went to be cleansed before entering heaven, being purified, as it were, in a fire of any imperfection or remaining uh, minor sin before entering into the full glory of heaven. We have since rejected this concept of purgatory, by the way. But at the time, the idea was that by receiving these special indulgences, either by purchasing them or by completing some sort of pilgrimage, Christians could lessen the time in purgatory for themselves or for loved ones. As one of the more successful indulgence sellers in Luther's area put it, When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Well, people were flocking to purchase these indulgences, even people who didn't really have the money to spare. And the money that was being collected was being used to fund these enormous building projects in the Vatican, uh, most notably St. Peter's Basilica, which if you've ever been to the Vatican, is a, a, a tremendous structure. Well, Martin Luther himself, being a Roman Catholic priest, monk, and teacher of the church, saw his fellow Germans being swindled out of their livelihood with these false promises, and they saw that these funds were leaving Germany and supporting the decadent luxury of a wealth-obsessed Rome. And so, hoping to bring this error to the light, he posted these debate topics. He registered a protest with the local archbishop, who had authority over these indulgences, Luther did not mean for this act to be one of defiance to the Pope. He did not intend to split the Church. In fact, he assumed these abuses were occurring without the Pope's knowledge and sanction. It quickly became clear, however, that the authorization for this action came all the way from the top. And the reaction against Luther took the form of a charge of heresy, an ultimatum that Luther recant his position, and finally, his excommunication from the Church thus began the decades-long event that we now call the Protestant Reformation, and the beginning of a church among many churches. uh, This one came to be known as Lutheran, over Martin Luther's objections. He didn't like his name being attached to people. Well, our scripture reading today is the story of King Solomon building the temple and then dedicating the temple upon its completion eight years later. Skip some time there. And It seems like an odd pairing for the story of the Reformation. King Solomon builds the temple 3,000 years ago, uh, quite a ways ago. The Reformation happens 500 years ago. They're quite a bit apart. Yet there's some similarities between these stories. Uh, In both cases, we find intensive building projects. And in both cases, these building projects are accomplished using exploitative practices, which lead to great divisions. With the Reformation, it was the exploitation of Germans and others through the sales of indulgences. With Solomon's Temple, it was the use of forced labor and high taxes. Where with the Reformation, it was the Roman Catholic Church that became divided. With Solomon's Temple, it was the nation of Israel that was divided. I think we often forget that part of the story of wise King Solomon. But it is his oppressive taxation and building regime that directly leads to the schism between the north and the south of Israel. The northern kingdom that comes to be known as Israel, the southern kingdom comes to be known as Judah. You can read more about that schism in 1 Kings chapter 12, just a few chapters after our reading this morning. But never again after Solomon would all of the tribes of Israel be united in one kingdom. So let's focus for a bit, not on the Reformation, but on our story of Solomon building the temple. This event, this construction of this magnificent temple, is not purely good, as we often assume, but is from the beginning a mixed bag, good and bad. To understand Solomon's building of the temple, we have to know something about his father David and a promise that God gives to David, which is crucially important even today for us Christians. So we're going to jump back from where we are in 1 Kings all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I invite you to follow me in your Bibles. uh, All the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. So this, this is long before Solomon is even born. In fact, this is before David has had anything to do with Solomon's mother, Bathsheba. Maybe you've heard of her. David is securely established as king. He has won victories over the surrounding nations. The kingdom has entered, at least for the moment, a time of peace. And now David has settled in a cedar palace for himself, and he begins to feel uneasy because the Ark of the Covenant, the box which contains the tablets, the stone tablets uh, of the law that Moses received from God, it's not in a nice established house like David is, but is instead in a tent. From the time of their wandering in the wilderness up through the time of David, there had not been one central temple for the worship of God, but rather what was called the tabernacle, a sort of mobile tent temple uh, that traveled with the Israelites throughout the wilderness as they settled in the promised land. This tent was constructed at God's command, and while there were other places of worship and other lowercase t temples it was this movable capital T tabernacle that served as the central place of worship. This didn't sit well with David. He's in a house, the Ark of Covenant is in a tent, so he calls in the prophet Nathan and tells him his plan to build a permanent temple a permanent temple structure for God. And at first, Nathan agrees, but that night he receives a message for David, and that message goes like this. Uh, and if you fo- want to follow along in your Bibles, it's on page 245, if you haven't found it already. And this is Second Samuel 7, starting in verse 5. Again, page 245. And I need my Bible so that I can read it. So God says to Nathan the prophet, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up uh, the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and shall be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly." From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Let's unpack that a little bit. So first notice how God says no to David. God points out that he has not lived in a house from the day he brought the Israelites out of Egypt, but rather has moved about with Israel, wherever Israel went. Not once did God ever ask for a house, but preferred this mobile tabernacle, the one built at God's command. Rather than God's presence being stationary, locked away in a temple somewhere... God preferred to be present in a mobile, dynamic way, able to be with the people wherever they were. Notice that God isn't arguing that the tabernacle is good enough. God is actually saying the tabernacle is better than a temple would be. The tabernacle being mobile is just better suited to God's nature. It's truer to God's desire to be with the people where they are rather than pre- present only in Jerusalem, only in To those who come to the temple. So then, as that passage goes on, God turns David's plan on its head. Rather than you build me a house, says God, I'm going to build you a house, that is, a legacy. God tells David that David's name will be renowned, that God will raise up a descendant of David after him, and then, and this is extremely important, God says this about that descendant after David. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, initially, it seems that that promise is intended to refer to Solomon, since he becomes king after his father David, and he has the ability to build a house, a temple for God. In fact, in our first Kings reading, Solomon quotes this very promise, though he uses the word son instead of the word offspring or descendant, making it a little clearer that it refers to him. But after the kingdom is split, and the centuries go on, and the Assyrians conquer and carry off the northern kingdom of Israel, and the Babylonians conquer and carry off the southern kingdom of Judah, it becomes clear that Solomon may not be this uh, fulfillment of this promise that God gave to David, perhaps not by a long shot. In fact, It is in this long wait for God to fulfill this promise, this promise to raise up a descendant of David and establish his throne forever, that Israel comes to expect a Messiah, and that Messiah finally comes in Jesus Christ. But back to Solomon. Solomon inherits a kingdom That's prosperous and at peace from his father, David. And without conferring with God or a prophet, at least so far as we're told, Solomon decides he's going to do what his father tried to do, wanted to do, but was prevented from doing. He's going to build a glorious temple to God. Solomon builds a temple which will impress the nations, a temple that will cause Israel's neighbor to know the name of the Lord and coincidentally to know the name of King Solomon who built it. I'm sure that didn't help or didn't hurt. This temple will stand as an awesome reminder to Israel that God has chosen them to be his temple, uh, his people, that God has delivered them from their enemies. And it all sounds so good, except that it's complicated by the fact that God told David he didn't want a house and that Solomon is not said to have consulted God. And that Solomon imposes harsh taxes and slavery, forced labor on his own people in order to build this temple. In fact, future prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel will all be fighting constantly against the notion that the temple guarantees God's protection even when Israel has abandoned the justice that God's covenant with them requires. These prophets will have to fight again and again against an idolatry of the temple. When the people of Israel begin to trust more in the glory of their temple than in the covenant promise that god has made with them in spite of these complications in spite of solomon's questionable motives and the danger the temple will present for israel in the future god does something in our story which amazes me when the temple is completed and the priests finish dedicating it god's presence still fills the temple Even though this doesn't seem to be God's first choice, God still chooses to be present in the place where the people of Israel seek to find him. And while God's presence will not be limited to this temple, and while this temple will not stand forever, whatever Solomon may think, God still chooses to be found in this place, at least for a time. What a gracious God we serve. What does any of this have to do with Reformation? Well, maybe it's this. Whether it's in Solomon's day 3,000 years ago, or in Luther's day 500 years ago, or in our day today, God's people have a tendency to lose sight of God's promises, to pay too much attention to the glory of our temples, or our basilicas, or our churches. We still find it easy to trust in a glorious building or an impressive denominational structure, or even a full sanctuary, rather than in God's promise to give us a Messiah and to establish us in his eternal kingdom. For while none of these external measures of success are bad by any means, none of them are complete or trustworthy on their own. For we have a God who chose to fulfill that promise to David not through a gold-plated temple— or powerful military action, or even an inspiring moral revival, but rather through a seemingly ordinary man born to young parents far from home, eventually rejected by his people, executed as a criminal, and raised on the third day. If there is continuing value in Reformation, and I think that there is, it is in shaking us out of our idolatries of glory And rooting us firmly in that promise which sustains us, that even if our churches crumble, our culture rejects us, our numbers dwindle to nothing, and let's pray to God that none of those things happen, nevertheless, the core of our faith is not shaken. For we rely not on numbers or cultural acceptance or appearances, but on the firm and eternal Word of God. So, brothers and sisters, on this Reformation Sunday, be rooted in this word of God to you. In Jesus Christ, your battle is over, your sins are forgiven, your salvation is won. This is most certainly true. Amen.